Amy Carson, and this is The Balance, Understanding Nonprofit Finance. In today's episode, Rick Cole joins me to talk about nonprofit accounting standards. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of The Balance. Our guest today is Rick Cole. Rick is a partner at Forvis. Welcome, Rick. Hey, how are you? Good. Good to be here. Good to have you. Rick, can you please tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, your background? Sure, happy to. I have uh, probably one of the more unusual backgrounds with people that you speak with. I started my career a really long time ago. I was working with a big four firm And for most of that, I worked in the nonprofit space. And after about 14 years there, made a pivot to my career and went into private accounting. And I left there and I went to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, where I was the vice president and controller. And I worked there for about seven and a half years or so. And then I got to a point in my career where I was just trying to figure out what was going to be next. And... I happened to come across an email that was from the FASB, and they were looking for somebody to join them to start working on projects to impact and not-for-profit organizations. I ended up joining them, and I worked there for just about six years. And while I was at the FASB, I got to work on all the projects that would impact not-for-profit organizations. The first one was the financial statements of nonprofit organizations. I worked on that for a couple years, and that just was a wonderful project and uh, was exciting to work on. And then the second project that I worked on was the grants and contributions standard, and that's the one that was enacted a couple years ago and dealt with conditions that would accompany contributions. And that was to try to make some clarity around things that started getting questioned after revenue recognition got issued with for-profit. So that was another fun project to work on. And then right before I left, I started working on the Gibson Kind Standard. And after working there for about six years, I was approached by a firm that was called BKD, ended up leaving the FASB and I joined BKD as a partner in the New York office. And just recently on June 1st of this year, BKD and Dixon Hughes Goodman had a merger. So we're right now the number eighth largest accounting firm in the country. And our new name is Forbis. So long introduction, but as I said, it's probably more unusual than most people's paths. Can you just in layman's terms, explain what FASB is and the role that FASB serves for those who may not know? Sure. Obviously that's an abbreviated name. It's the Financial Accounting Standards Board. So there's the Financial Accounting Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. It's a 501c3. And FAF, the Financial Accounting Foundation, has two programs. One of them is the FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board. And the other one is the GASB, the Governmental mm-hmm. Accounting Standards Board. So I was on the FASB side. And it's like the program piece of the FAF. And they are the recognized standard setter. So they're recognized by the SEC as the accounting standard setter in the United States for U.S. GAAP. GAAP being generally accepted accounting principles. Yeah, GAAP being generally accepted accounting principles. The FASB is like the organization that writes the rules that creates generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP in the U.S. or for companies to follow U.S. accounting. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. So is it fair to say that FASB effectively sets the rules that the auditors then effectively implement and that the controllers need to follow? That's a very fair assessment. The FASB sets the rules that the accountants at the companies, at the nonprofits, have to follow. And then the auditors make sure they have to follow the AICPA's auditing standards to make sure that the FASB's accounting standards are appropriately followed. I think what's so interesting about you and your perspective is that you've literally been on all sides of this. So you've been a controller in-house. Well, you currently are, and you have previous experience as well, being an auditor, so effectively being on that side. And then your experience at FASB setting the rules and regulations, I think it's, it's really different. It is. You know, when I when I went to FASB, I never thought of myself as being like the smartest person in the room, right? I thought I was smart enough. I worked with a large accounting firm. I was in the industry for a long time. But one of the things that he really liked was the fact that I had that controller experience and I was able to put myself in the shoes of both an auditor and the controller. I was able to look at both sides of it. And when you're setting standards at FASB, They look at three sides. They look at the auditor side. They look at the preparer side, preparer meaning like a controller. And they look at the financial statement user side, which would be like a banker or someone who worked for credit rating agencies or somebody that works at the attorney general's office. Those are the three sides. And I had two of the three. So that really excited them when I was coming aboard. And now that I'm back in public and I have all those sides, I'm able to talk to clients and friends, and I'm able to talk as an auditor, I'm able to talk as a standard setter, and I'm able to talk as a controller. I actually have three sides to it, and it just makes the conversations that much better. You gave three examples of projects that you worked on when you were at FASB, but over the course of the past couple of years, there have also been quite a few additional changes. Can you maybe talk about some of those and maybe how that impacts you in your current role as auditor? Sure. One of the things that I did when I was at the FASB was I was like the go-to person for nonprofits. So anytime there was a standard being issued or a project being worked on, they would want to get the viewpoints of all the industries that were out there. So like when lease accounting or when revenue recognition or cloud computing or any of those new standards that came out, they would speak to me about how it would impact nonprofit organizations. Sometimes I gave them my opinion on certain things. And sometimes, depending on what the issue was, I would arrange phone calls. And it could be with a group of nonprofit specialists, whether it be auditors, whether it be the AICPA's not-for-profit expert panel. And the outreach that was done would get feedback for any of those projects, like leases, like revenue recognition, Mm. like cloud computing. Years later, some of those are actually now being implemented, like lease accounting. So many people have implemented it over the last number of years, but not everyone yet. The final group of people is now getting into the implementation. So stuff that was issued while I was there years and years later are now being implemented. So it's, I don't want to say fun, that sounds evil, but it's fun to have some of the background, some of the history, some of the knowledge to really be able to help my clients with the implementations of those standards. That makes a lot of sense. And the ones implementing now, I would argue, are smaller. And I know a lot of my clients are on the smaller end. And so they, we don't, don't necessarily have a big 
finance and accounting department. And so this is a bit more overwhelming. You're 100% right. You would think that the bigger companies would have more leases, more complexities, and that's pretty true. The smaller companies might have a little bit less in terms of the number of leases. That makes it a little bit easier. But you still need to know what the rules are. Like, How do you come up with a discount rate? What's the original entry that you have to put on the books the first time that you adopt? How do you hit the P&L when you are going through the year just learning what the rules are? Whether or not they changed or didn't change or they were tweaked a little bit from what was originally in place, you still got to know that. So it's relearning what the rules would be, even if the rules didn't change, because you don't know what changed and what didn't change. What's the impetus behind FASB making an update? And how frequent are these updates? <laughs> Probably more frequent than people would have liked in the more recent years. In the last number of years, you had RevRec come out, you had leases come out, and then the nonprofits had financial reporting come out and they had grants come out, grants and contributions. So there's been a lot of change recently. And the, the big one that's here or coming is CECL, which is the current expected credit losses. That's like massive for banks, impacts nonprofits, but not to the extent that it would impact like a bank. But the impetus is in some cases, it's what's going on in the market. Oh. So for example, when financial statements of nonprofits, when that project was started, the reason it got started was because the FASB decided years ago that it wanted to have more of a focus in the nonprofit space. It didn't feel that it had enough representation or enough knowledge of what was going on in the nonprofit space. So the NAC, the Not-for-Profit Advisory Committee, is one of those committees that was created for the sole purpose of making sure the FASB had awareness of what was happening in the nonprofit space. When they were first established, one of the things that they were charged with is when you look at accounting today for nonprofits, what do you think needs to have some improvements? Okay. So FASB statement number 117, which is like a really old statement, and that was the financial reporting model that nonprofits were following. So here it was, and it was like 20 years later, and they said, you know what, that model came out, and it came out in the mid-1990s. We've had about 20 years of experience with it. We think there could be a facelift that could happen. There could be improvements. So the FASB listened to that feedback and they said, you know what? Let's take a relook at financial reporting for nonprofits and let's start a project. And that's what the starting point was of creating that project that ended up changing the financial reporting model. And that needed to happen because so much happened along the way. And one of the reasons was because there were some regulatory changes along the way. So things happen in life that you have to adopt to. You know, there's cryptocurrency out there today. Yeah. What's the accounting on cryptocurrency? It's taking a new concept and taking the accounting that existed before cryptocurrency existed and forcing that accounting to be followed because that's what you follow. Should that be changed? So the FASB is looking at a project right now about whether or not they should be making changes to um, how to account for cryptocurrency. Should it be at fair value? Should it be at cost? So they're looking at stuff like that right now because life goes on and things happen and things change. I really like that. And crypto is actually a perfect example of something brand new that there are no standards around and just... And FASB would have to think about, like, how do we manage yeah. and regulate and, that? That's a 
great example. Absolutely. And there's a way to account for them now. Like I have in my mind, there's no gray. It's pretty black and white that this is how you account for it. But is that the best way? The standards may be able to handle it, but the standards were created before the concept of cryptocurrency existed. Yeah. So I like this. So as kind of a user of these standards, it is helpful to understand that they aren't being set just to piss me off, that they're being set with very specific reasons because the market is changing, because they're dated, because we have new information. I think that's almost calming to me. There's a method behind the madness. Yeah, you know, people, the public in general, a lot of times people get upset. Oh, the FASB, more standards. Why do they keep doing this to me? And they think that it's against them. But the reasons are, that they are trying to help the system as a whole. They're trying to help the financial statement users. The financial statement users need data so they can make decisions. Yes. And if the financial statements don't have the right data in them, so financial statement users can make those decisions, then what good are the financial statements? Exactly. And if it's too costly for the preparers of financial statements to put those things in, then what good are the standards? And if it's too hard to audit those standards that just went in, how fair is that to the preparer that now their audit fees have to go up? So the FASB always has that balance of how difficult is the standard to implement? How costly will it be to implement? What benefit will the financial statement user get as a result of the implementation? And they consider all that stuff as they're creating standards. And it's it's not a perfect science. So... If there's a thousand people that are polled, you're not going to have all thousand that agree it was great. Yep. Because, you know, you can't make a decision that 100% are going to agree with. So the purpose of the standards really is to set an equal playing field because the user of financial statements frequently, especially for nonprofit organizations, is going to be the donor in a lot of instances. If I'm just thinking about this very simplistically, it's to set a level playing field so that donors can read different batches of audited financial statements and have some level of trust that they're comparing apples to apples. Yeah. You know, if you ask like a typical FASB person, the term they would use is investors. What do the investors need? Fair. But who is an investor? Well, a donor to a nonprofit is an investor. They are making a contribution to invest in the mission. Exactly. A banker who is making a loan they're an investor. They're making a loan to make money back. Yep. But if, if you're buying stocks and bonds, if you are someone who's building a portfolio and you need to understand a public company, you're an investor. So that's the term that they use, a very broad term. But yeah, in the nonprofit space, a donor or a banker are probably two of the biggest users. That's really helpful, Rick. Thank you. I think I've actually called you a couple of times. And when we meet for lunch a couple of times a year, we always have this discussion. But I think it is helpful to, to talk about in this context. What can be challenging for us is, you know, we work with 50 to 100 nonprofit organizations at any given point in time. And a lot of our clients are small. Annual operating budgets, $5 million or under. And a lot of them are funded by the same foundations. And so the wording of grant letters is pretty consistent across foundations and therefore across clients. So I will have one client that's funded by Foundation A and another client also funded by Foundation A, two different auditors, 
same grant letter, <laughs> two different opinions on how to record the revenue. I know I'm actually like my blood is boiling, like having this conversation. And I will frequently have two auditors very firm in their stances on how this should be treated with zero flexibility. <laughs> so I would appreciate your thoughts and comments there. That's funny. And it's true. And I would say that oftentimes the way the literature is written, there's a lot of black and white, but there's also a lot of gray. And the FASB is not able to always create standards that's going to cover 100% of the situations. They will make principles that have to be followed. And you take those principles and you apply them to a situation. And sometimes you're in a situation that's not quite in direct line with what you are dealing with in that situation. So you might have two slightly different interpretations. And the example is with like the PPP loans that everyone just had. Perfect example. You know, is the PPP a loan or is the PPP loan a grant? And for those that got the PPP loans, they know that they actually had a choice. There was enough grayness and nonprofits were able to record it as a loan and then not record the forgiveness until it actually happens or record it as a refundable advance. And once you overcome the barriers, you can then take that refundable advance, which would have been a liability, and you would then record that as a contribution. Yep. And so there's an area where there was some choice that frustrates a lot of people. What you just said, people have called and said, how come this is not quite as crisp as I would like it to be? And it's because it, it's not always meant to solve 100% of the problems. Because if you try to solve 100% of the problems, you'll probably never get anything done. That makes a lot of sense. I think what can be frustrating for us is living in the black and white versus living in the gray and understanding that there is some gray. Yeah. And like the PPP is such an awesome example. It is gray. We can record as is most appropriate for the organization because this can actually have a this can have a really big impact, um, especially depending on the size of the PPP loan because it's effectively like which fiscal year are we going to record a massive sum of revenue in? And that can be the difference between a big surplus or a big deficit in certain instances. Donors do not like to see deficits. And so how revenue is recorded and what period revenue is recorded in is huge for nonprofit organizations and where we spend a lot of time chatting with auditors like, hey, we interpret the grant this way. What do you think? We interpret this loan this way. What do you think? We want to book it here. It's most appropriate for the nonprofit. What do you think? It can be overwhelming, quite frankly. Yeah, it can be. It can be frustrating. But at the same time, it can be helpful. Very helpful. Because the codification is where all the accounting rules reside. The FASB's codification, that's where the rules literally are. If you understand how it works, you can look at the requirements. And then you can see where it specifically tells you certain things and then where it doesn't address certain things. So you analogize. And when you analogize, you can sometimes get different answers. And you can go down different paths depending on what you're analogizing to. What should a nonprofit do if they disagree with their auditor's interpretation of a standard? It's a great question. And I think that's where it becomes helpful to have a good working knowledge of the standards. I had a debate once with 
another auditor, a different firm. And they told me they were having all their clients treat some COVID money in a very specific way. And my response back was, if you were my auditor, I would push back. And I would say, that's not black and white anywhere. There is options on this. And they said, well, there is, but we're just trying to give them the guidance. And I said, so if I pushed back and if I said, I don't agree with you, this is my position and this is why, what would you do? And he said, we would accept it. That was good to hear. And I think that if you have a working knowledge and you challenge your auditor to say, show me where it says that is required. Because sometimes the auditor might be analogizing to something and pulling that in. But your circumstance might be just a little bit different. And you may be able to argue as to why that analogy doesn't quite work. So again, having a working knowledge of the codification will help you get there. Okay. How are um, FASB updates typically communicated to the sector? So one way to get the information is by going to the conferences, the AICPA, the state societies, or any of the other conferences that are out there. But the FASB also makes it really simple, and they have emails that they send out to you. Oh, wow. So you go to FASB.org, and you go to the Stay Connected link, and in that link, you sign up. And you put your name, your email, your phone number, all that stuff. And then you could check different boxes about what do you want to hear about? What industries do you want to hear about? And do you want to hear about all these whole variety of different things? And then you'll get emails from the FASB. So every week, typically, there's what's called a FASB action alert. And the action alert will be issued the day after the FASB's board meeting. And it'll give you a brief summary of all the decisions the FASB made at that board meeting. So if you're an accounting geek like me and you wanna stay current on like the progress they're making on certain standards, you go to the FASB.org, you go to Stay Connected, you sign up for the action alerts, and you will get emails almost every week telling you about what's happening and what's changing. It may not tell you everything that you need, but it'll at least give you an awareness that makes a lot of sense. Maybe we can close by talking a little bit about some of your audit clients you work with or have worked with through the years and how some of these standard updates can impact an organization. Any examples come to mind or thoughts you have there? I think that it was a coincidence. The FASB did not go out there and create a pandemic. <laughs> they didn't do it. But well before this pandemic started, the FASB had that project on grants and contributions. And then all the CARES Act money and all the COVID relief money started getting issued. And by having that standard issue, the nonprofits now had a roadmap yeah. of how they can account for a lot. So it was such a coincidence in timing that ASU 2018-08, which is the one on grants and contributions, was issued. And then a year and a half later, the pandemic happens and all this relief money comes out. And there's a place that you can look to on how to handle the accounting. And I thought that was awesome. It was just perfect timing. I also think that when I look at the financial statements of nonprofit standard, there's a requirement on financial assets available for general expenditure as well as liquidity. 
people often call that the liquidity disclosure. There's a lot of flexibility in how you prepare that by nonprofits. And I think that that flexibility was intended to exist and it allows the nonprofit to tell their story, which is a starting place for financial statement users to start looking at the liquidity of an organization. It doesn't give an absolute measure, Mm. but it's a starting place to start to ask questions so that you can, as a financial statement user, have conclusions about that nonprofit's liquidity. So again, I think that there's another example that that standard, that one piece of that standard allows organizations to tell their story. And again, when you're going through hard financial times where right now the economy is crazy, and before this, what we had the pandemic and, you know, theoretically we're still in it too. So how is that impacting these organizations? How is it impacting cash positions of organizations and the other financial assets that an organization might have? Many organizations have struggled and the flexibility in financial presentations over where do you show the COVID relief? Organizations that have put it into their operating measure, you are sometimes hiding how much an organization might be struggling financially because they have this one-time revenue that's sitting up in operations from the government that's going to dry up. But then if you put it down in non-operating, you can see what the results would have been without that grant. And having that flexibility to use an operating measure, you don't have to have one, but if you do use one, having that flexibility and then being able to decide whether or not you want to put that COVID relief in operations or outside of operations, it really allows you to tell your story to the financial statement user on how you're doing as an organization. So you've always had flexibility in terms of using an operating measure, but this is an example where I think that using that flexibility really allowed nonprofits to put an explanation point on the results that they want to show the public. Okay. What advice would you give to people that find this maybe a little overwhelming or scary? Look, I am inherently a lazy person. (laughs) You are not. I'm going to just start with that. So I think the easiest thing to do at a minimum is go to FASB.org, sign up for those emails. If nothing else, and you get a weekly email, you will see, you can skim it in 30 seconds and see if it's something that you care about or don't care at all about. And if you care about that topic because it impacts you, you can then dig deeper. You can then go to their website, go to the projects page, and follow along at what's happening. And if you don't care about it, but you at least saw the action alert, you would then at least have an awareness there's something out there, and you're current. And you don't need to know everything about everything. But if at least you have a sense that there is some stuff out there on this topic, then at least you know that if you ever are in a situation where you're dealing with that, that you know that you should be looking for some guidance. And if it's something that directly impacts you, you follow a little bit closer because you know it's going to impact you. And the FASB is always looking for feedback. So if it impacts you and you feel really strongly about it, eventually when they go to issue a standard, they're going to issue a, um, a a draft standard for the public to weigh in, and you'll have the opportunity to send in a comment to say that you agree or disagree with it. But so to me, being the lazy person that I am, I think that's the easiest way to actually stay connected. 
Okay. So this enables you to stay connected and stay on top of potential updates that are coming out. Yeah. But at the same time, it also empowers you to really be informed enough to be able to push back if you don't necessarily agree with what you are hearing. Yes. Yeah. And then obviously when you go to the conferences, that kind of fills in the blanks a little bit because it starts to get into a lot more than just a couple paragraphs that you might be reading in this action alert. Okay. This is great. Rick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, and this episode was produced by David Hoffman, post-production by Alex Brower, and production managed by Gabriella Montekin. If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps, and please leave a rating and a review. See you next time.